I've titled my homily today, Dreaming in League with God. Uh, this is a phrase that I believe the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel made famous when he talked about prayer as being humanity's hope to dream in league with God. He says that prayer is not just something where we try to translate our words to God, but where God translates us. And so what does it look like for us as a community to dream in league with God? We're still uh, in our series, our fall series, talking about vision, and particularly for us this fall, we've been talking about non-hierarchy or shared leadership and what that looks like. And so we'll be returning to Philippians, but going a little bit beyond it to Philippians 4 in just a minute. And this image behind me uh, is from Minneapolis, which was once a town that I didn't know this until I visited a few weeks ago, was once known entirely and built around its mills and the Mississippi River there powered uh, grain that would be processed from all over the Midwest would travel to Minneapolis and get processed and then distributed not only around the country but around the world. And so for the longest time, Minneapolis was mill town. It was a mill city. Uh, eventually, we found ways beyond hydro water hydraulic power to be able to power mills. And so people realize we probably don't need to send our grain all the way to Minneapolis when we could do it right here in Iowa or wherever you might be growing it. And so all of a sudden these mills that were built in the heart of Minneapolis, of the city, uh, went out of business or moved to other places and they set dormant and vacant. And so at the, the heart of the city, not an unknown phenomenon for many urban cities, uh, all of a sudden that had once been about life and commerce found itself uh, really struggling. And this particular mill was the gold metal flower. You've probably used them before at some point in your life. Uh, mill, and it actually uh, had become a place where people who were experiencing houselessness would occasionally go, and they believed, though we're not entirely sure who started the fire, that probably in a cold Minneapolis winter, someone trying to seek shelter and warmth uh, in this abandoned factory set a fire that then got out of control. And so the entire factory burned down. And so the city then just left it. Uh, the sort of charred remains for a number of years, not entirely sure what to do with it. And then eventually someone said, you know, the mills, though they are no longer the focus of our economy, they really do sort of tell the story of our city, at least its past, and perhaps if we can find a way to harness this and reflect on our past uh, in a way that might give us some insight into where we are going in the future as a city. And so it was reinvigorated as the Mill City Museum, and that's where you can see all the shiny glass, et cetera, that's there today that you can go visit. And that's where I learned all this stuff. I'm not a historian about Minneapolis, as it turns out. Um, but I was so in love with the way that they took something that had been an expired dream, if you will. Like, I'm sure there was a time when for Minneapolis, like, you know, mills are the business. They're going to be the thing that drive us and move us forward. And, and that dream had come and it had gone and it was dead in the water. And yet said, is there a way that we can still be connected to this once rich and beautiful and verdant past and in a way that might also be able to inform us as a city about our future, about our values, about where we are headed collectively together. What might it look like to dream in league with God? And as we talk about 
non-hierarchy and shared leadership, one of the most common questions I get asked is, who's really in charge? Like, particularly, like, who's really in charge in a crisis? Like, if there's some sort of HR scandal or if all of a sudden the, the economy falls out and we're like, we don't have enough money for things, we've got to make really tough decisions, like, what then happens? Sure, it's nice, perhaps, when everyone's like, high five, I love Vanessa, I love Waylon, I love Christopher, I love Brandon, I love uh, Caroline, I love Olivia, everybody that we love, I love Kelly, it's on staff, I love all the Nav, Jenna, Kimberly, Nick, now nah, I'm getting in trouble, it's going too long. But you get it, everybody, we love everybody. And then uh, Amy, since I did just finish off the Nav, <laughs> we love them too. Uh, it's everything's wonderful when we're all working together, but what happens when we find a crisis? And I think hidden in there, um, the question behind the question is like, who do I look to for safety, for control, or for influence? Like, like when things are really starting to shake and tremble as a community, uh, we're wanting to know, how, how do I find this sense of belonging, this connection, this place of refuge. I need to know that there's someone who is going to take the lead because we all have the sense that like in crisis, we don't have time to sort of have a 12-week discussion and come to consensus about the best way forward. Sometimes we need to take decisive action. And so what does that look like? And one of the things that we've been discussing and particularly have been helped by Ben Mustin, who has done some consulting with us as NAV and as staff, uh, has been around the idea of focusing less on power and more on process. What are the processes that we have built together as a community for us, not only amongst the navigation team and the staff, but also with our covenant members, with even our broader participants, and even the larger Austin community? What are the processes we have built in place that we can really trust in and develop trust with one another so that even when crises hit us, we aren't trying to look to say, okay, who really has the power? Like, who's the person with the cape on that I can get behind and they're going to shield me from all of the bullets and they're going to save the day? But instead can have a shift where if we really are not only taking down this hierarchy, but truly finding that everyone then in its place has a sense of empowerment, that they are empowered, that you're not just looking out there, but you're looking to yourself. What is my role in this crisis? And how can I support? And how can I lead out? And what are the gifts that I have? And that's part of the journey that we are looking to. I recently uh, got to see artificial intelligence, AI artificial intelligence, the film, mostly a Steven Spielberg joint, but kind of a Stanley Kubrick, uh, at least knockoff or tribute film as well. And in this film, David, the AI boy, uh, has been created by Professor Hobby, because Professor Hobby is wondering if it would be possible in the not too distant future to create a robot that would actually experience love and that could have some real sense of choice and determination. He says to David, you, you found a fairy tale and inspired by love and fueled by desire. You set a journey to make her real. And most remarkable of all, no one taught you how. Where would your self-motivated reasoning take you? 
And then he gives kind of two options. To the logical conclusion that the blue fairy is part of the great human flaw to wish for things that don't exist. Or to the greatest single human gift, the ability to chase down our dreams. And we see in this film, uh, for better or for worse, and I would say many times for worse, the pain that David, this artificially intelligent boy who has imprinted on a mother who no longer feels safe with him, and so she has had to cast him out of the garden, as it were. Um, And he is longing to be able to find that love and that connection from his mother. And he has encountered the story of Pinocchio and believes that perhaps there is a blue fairy that can turn him into a real boy. And if so, then perhaps he might be able to find love, the love with his mother that he's longed for, that is driving him in every way. And towards the end of this film, he just chooses to essentially meditate, to reflect, to stare for hundreds and then ultimately thousands of years uh, at this statue of a blue fairy essentially whispered over going, please like make me a real boy. It is his prayer. And we're not sure if this longing is a curse or if it is a blessing for him. In our passage today, going on to Philippians 4, uh, we read that Paul says, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And the next verse will get to a little bit more about who who are these people, Iodia and Syntyche, what's the deal with these women. But I find it so interesting that in Philippians, this letter that is known for being centered around joy and is kind of known as one of Paul's more upbeat letters, you know, other times he's kind of like griping it. You guys are messed up. Church is really messy. They're going to have to do something called deconstruct a couple thousands of years if you don't get your act together, because this is really, really bad. Oftentimes in other letters, that's what we hear Paul speaking. But in Philippians, you just kind of get this like, oh no, like in our passage today, we're going to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And that for me to live is Christ. There's all these kinds of beautiful, powerful, you know, some of your family members may have had it stitched on a wall somewhere, kind of expressions of joy in Philippians. And yet in this sort of final leg of Philippians chapter four, where we tend to think that Paul is kind of just doing his like, okay, all the people who I love, high five, keep doing your thing. Uh, Instead, Paul pivots to something very personal, to this fracture, this conflict uh, that is happening within the church between Iodia and Syntyche. But we imagine since he's addressing it to the entire community that whatever the conflict is, its ramifications are much bigger than just Iodia and Syntyche. And so this letter of joy all of a sudden seems to just like derail at this conflict for a few moments. And Paul says, I urge, and he says it twice, uh, there is this sense in the urging to appeal, to exhort, to strongly encourage. And Paul choosing to say both times, I urge you and I urge you, uh, seems to show that he's not in any way taking sides and also of the really importance of whatever this is. I want you to be of the same mind in the Lord. This is not saying that he wants them to conform. I don't read this as even Paul saying, I want you to get in line with where I am, though there are some people who have a more patriarchal reading of this and would say that they see here Paul sort of saying, 
I'm the man, you women listen up and here's what you need to do. And let's be real, Paul existed in a patriarchal society as we do, so that's a fair reading. That's not in light of Philippians 2 that we've been discussing in our vision series, how I take it, but that is a fair reading to perhaps have. But I see rather in this urging, in this exhorting Paul saying, this is really important. I need you to not miss out. Chapter two, when he's talked about Jesus coming down from the heavens, not considering equality as something to be held on to, but rather taking the form of a human. Paul said, this is what it means to have the mindset of Christ. This is what it is like to take him as our example. And whatever is happening in this community, if we aren't being shaped by that understanding of power, if that is not the process that we all find ourselves on, then we are going to be in trouble. To be of the same mind in the Lord, to be mindful, to feel, to think, uh, is something that Paul encourages 10 different times in this short letter to the church in Philippi. So I would say along with the sense of joy, this idea of having the same mindset of Christ, of being in harmony with the mind of Christ, uh, perhaps even some have suggested it means to be able to see Christ in one another and to honor the Christ that we see in each other, that this is key to how Paul understands formation of our lives together, that both our own individual and collective journey is all about this process of being formed in this letting go of our need to have power over one another and instead celebrating the power that we collectively have together. And so dreaming together with the mind of Christ is seeing ourselves with right-sizedness. Pride can show up in the way that we puff up too big and how we often sometimes shrink down too small. These are often two sides of the same coin, even if some of us might be prone to experience one side or the other much more than the others in certain areas of our life. Um, Often self-effacement can be a shadow virtue of this pride where instead of trying to say, oh, no, no, I'm not egotistical. You know, it, it, could, it couldn't have happened if, if NAV hadn't shown up. It wouldn't have happened if these volunteers in Greenhouse hadn't done their thing. But, but all the while, really thinking, but, you know, I am pretty central to it. And it's kind of nice that people keep giving me my kudos and pats on the back. Living with right sizeness might look like considering someone else's perspective, but without diminishing our own. How might we truly hear someone out, truly listen to their understanding of the world? Even if we might believe it's fairly unhinged from all of reality, what does it look like to listen and to care for someone in that way, while also not neglecting the healthy care and boundaries for ourselves? Seeing the sacred and the special in someone else as well as in ourselves, how can you remind yourself of someone else's humanity? What helps you recall both the needs and the gifts someone else is bringing? How can you simultaneously stay connected to your own needs and gifts? Uh, In what will probably go down as the quintessential film of our time, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, we meet Spider-Punk, a.k.a. Hobby Brown, and I don't necessarily know that he has any desire other than to break down hierarchies. Uh, When he introduces himself, he says, I'm not a hero because calling yourself a hero makes you a self-mythologizing, narcissistic autocrat. 
right? And I kind of love that sense of he's like, I'm refusing to be put on this pedestal that you want to put me on. Uh, If you've seen the film, which I hope you have by now, you know, there are all kinds of spider people everywhere. And he seems to say, like, I will work among them, but I'm not going to silently bow to some power that is out there, especially when I don't know its agenda or what war it's trying to get me to fight. Instead, I'm going to be among the people, empowered as I am. He's He shows up on the scene and immediately is exuding power, but he doesn't need to hold that over people in any sort of way. We've been, uh, as we've been going on this journey, uh, Ben encouraged uh, us to look at Reinventing Organizations, a book that uh, is not perfect by any means, but just talks about organizations and what it might look like to move into non-hierarchy as organizations. And they talk about Red organizations, which some current examples they give would be things like the mafia or street gangs or tribal militias, that that these red organizations uh, had key breakthroughs of division of labor and communal authority, that they saw themselves like a wolf pack that you can imagine uh, early in our history when it might have just been a few families to say like, oh, hey, we in this region can all come together and there's this powerful person who's going to offer us protection. Uh, This seems like a good deal. That's helping us to stay safe from other people, other places. Uh, So it's not that we necessarily here to demean the red organizations or their mindsets. They gave us some key breakthroughs, but they're not the end all, that there are these amber organizations that uh, had key breakthroughs of formal roles and processes that came in place and see themselves probably more like in a hierarchy of a military. And they were trying to say, hey, you know, the the one thing we didn't like about that chieftain or that mafia boss was that they kind of wielded power absolutely and sometimes very violently in ways that weren't always healthy or productive for us. We kind of want to know that there are more processes in place to keep everyone safe and secure. And so we move to this. And again, a great innovation, that then there are orange organizations whose key breakthroughs are innovation, accountability, and meritocracy. They might see themselves as machines. And, and here, if, if in the first set of organizations you might have had might makes right, and if in the second one it's sort of this, the moral processes that we have created are what lead us and guide us, and also though I didn't mention it earlier, churches would tend to fall in uh, that then in this one, it's, it's more not about the might or about the morals. It's instead in this machine factor that uh, whatever is going to be effective, that's going to be the thing. That's going to be the thing that leads us and guides us and that we move on. Where can we find innovation that helps us to one-up our competition? And then there are green organizations whose key breakthroughs are empowerment a values-driven culture and stakeholder model that tend to see themselves as families. And none of these organizations are necessarily wrong or right. Uh, The author acknowledges that there are times when we might want any one of these. If we found ourselves in the zombie apocalypse, it might be cool to have like a superhero leader to say like, okay, we're gonna get behind you and you're gonna help us right now. Uh, So again, the, the thought is not that we are here to rag on any one of these per se, but just also to appreciate their breakthroughs and to notice their limitations. Uh, The author 
says this, these first four organizational models all hold in common that they tend to see their perspective as the valid one and other perspectives as dangerously wrong. To oversimplify, people who see the world differently are weaklings to be taken advantage of in the red organizations, or they're heretics to be brought back to the one true way in the amber organization, or they're fools who don't know how to play the game of success in orange organizations, or in green organizations, they're intolerant people who won't give everyone an equal voice. And so these are, as they understand it, and probably many of you out here know much more about this than I do. I've read a book. Uh, but uh, uh, how a way of sketching out organizations, and then they wonder what might non-hierarchical organizations look like. One of the downsides, even to this green organization that many of us might find lots of uh, simpatico-ness with, um, is often the understanding is, well, if we've torn down hierarchy, we have to have a consensus model. And in smaller organizations and groups, that can work really well. And there are times when even we as a community have said, like so far, typically whenever we call a pastor, we've said that at least NAV and the search committee are going to be in full consensus uh, in recommending that to the committee and then, or to the community, and the community is going to vote. But even then, we haven't said 100% of the people must vote for the pastor or else you know, we start the whole process over again. And so that this consensus element uh, can sometimes be a sticking point in these organizations. And that also there is still this idea of being empowered, but it has still this hierarchical sense of, well, there is someone who is inviting you to the table and giving you the power rather than acknowledging that we all already have the power, that the system is set up, that the process is geared in a way that this is the case. I don't know if these people are really the embodiment of it. I apologize that with the exception of one who is blue, that they are all white men. But we could have the Vito Corleone. We could have the General Throne. We could have the Bill Gates. We could have Ben and Jerry as examples of these first four uh, kinds of models of organizations. Um, and as this particular author envisions what the future might look like. Key breakthroughs of what they see as teal organizations, these non-hierarchical shared leadership organizations, are self-management, operating with peer relationships without the need for hierarchy or consensus. So everyone has the power to make decisions, but they're doing that often by seeking out advice for all the people who are impacted, saying we need to know who the key stakeholders are and we need to make sure that we've listened to them and considered fully what their perspective is as we move forward in making these decisions. That wholeness is one of the key breakthroughs, encouraging us to show up holistically and fully rather than in narrow roles, that we're invited not just to be professional self here, but we're invited to bring all of our complexities of our journey uh, into the room. And that it's an organization with an evolving purpose, invited to listen in to what the organization wants to become, what purpose it wants to serve, rather than trying to predict, control the future. And so there's the sense, and I think we're going to hear again from this next week um, from Jenna. She talks about what it looks like to discern our way forward, but we also have already begun to hear from it with Kimberly, as Kimberly talked about what does it mean for us to be priesthood of the believers where there are 
all of us empowered by God, not needing the mediator to be able to do this work collectively, to listen to God, to our life, to our world, and decide together, who are we called to be in this moment? What does it look like for us to embody the spirit of Christ this day is a big part of it. And so our passage continues, verse three, now that our organizational uh, talk is over. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. He's, this word help has a sense to take hold together with. It's taking part with someone in the activity. He's not saying, hey, you're like the frustrated parent who their kid's never going to get the volcano for the science fair to do the thing, so you just take over and do it for them. But it really does mean, no, you're working alongside them in this. Um, they are tolerated to relocate our understanding of power and presence of God, not only in our individual personal lives, but powerfully in the lives of others. Paul challenges the faith community in Philippi to have a collective mental orientation to Christ. There have been, in biblical scholar circles, lots of questions like, loyal companion, who is the loyal companion? And lots of dissertations have been written over that. But the way I take it, which is not the way, it's just a way, um, is understanding the loyal companion as being a placeholder for the entire community. So whatever this disagreement is, Paul is saying, I'm inviting collectively the wisdom and the power that is throughout this organic body, this living organism, which is the guiding metaphor for teal organizations. Uh, I'm inviting us to lean into that collectively to help us move forward together so that when we dream together with the mind of Christ, we can act with empathy toward our interdependence. We also see that in verse four, Paul says, I struggled, these women struggled beside me in the work of the gospel. In other words, he's acknowledging that whoever Iota and Synthiki are, and we don't know precisely, they must have been people who were co-workers, who were colleagues, who did the full work of gospel ministry together with Paul. And whatever this disagreement is, it seems to be having far more impact than just are they going to spend their vacation together with one another. But it seems to be having overriding impact to the work of the larger community of faith. And I don't see Paul as chiding them, as sort of saying, like, stop being this ridiculous self, but acknowledging like, hey, our humanity really does get messy, doesn't it? And this is a time when humanity is getting messy and we are not having the mind of Christ. And so what does it look like for all of us collectively to be reshaped and formed by this mind of Christ? How can we allow communal wisdom and facilitation to empower us? What might it look like to lean into a trained therapist, a skilled consultant, a trusted friend, a loving partner, a midweek group member, a valued mentor, and allow them to help orient us through conflict, through disagreement and discernment. And finally, in verse four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Another word for rejoice is thrive. And I don't believe if we're specifically, if we remember that Paul is writing from a prison, I don't believe that Paul had this sort of Pollyannish, like rainbow glasses on, where he's like, everything is good and happy. Everything is awesome. Uh, But I do think he's saying we can thrive even in hard times. We can thrive in the Lord always. I will say it again, thrive. And that one of the keys then is to let our gentleness, which is our fairness, our equitableness, our patience, be known to everyone. For that to be our calling card. And then this peace of God, which is envisioned as national tranquility, a world without war, when especially when we look at what's happening between Israel and Palestine right now, all of us grieve to see more violence and death being brought to bear. Uh, and he says, there's a peace of national tranquility, also of interpersonal harmony. And the peace of God is also that this nonviolent peace of the Messiah, this peace will bring justice to an unjust and cruel and capricious world. This peace will bring healing and wholeness to our tattered lives, our traumatized past, and our spiritually thirsty lives. It is this harvesting of communal justice and formational righteousness. In the Amazon Prime movie, Cassandra, we meet Saul Armendariz, who is a luchador, a wrestler, who's from El Paso, Texas. It tells the true story, uh, who was a gay amateur wrestler, and he had always been the heel, which is the wrestler who loses, uh, and he gets tired of this, and because many people know, though he is not necessarily fully out as a gay man, uh, that he is, you should be an exotico, this type of wrestler that is very effeminate, but also always loses. Uh, he decides ultimately that he will, but he wants to, by finally claiming his truth, interestingly, by no longer wearing the luchador mask, but taking that off and being his more exotico self in the ring, that he wants to be able to win over the people. He wants them to love him and cheer for him in such a way that the crowd will demand that he not be the loser, but that he be the winner, uh, upending conventional understandings of what must happen for these roles. And he is successful at it. He's also estranged from his father. And towards uh, the end of the movie, he meets with his father and he says, I needed you. At a certain point in my life, I needed you, but now I don't, and it's okay. His father, Eduardo, says, Saul, sometimes I think I didn't have a choice about the person that I ended up being, to which he replies, neither did I. And he gets up and he leaves. For much of the film, we've seen him wrestling with not only opponents in the ring, but with his own identity and the way that has impacted, uh, particularly how his father has accepted him or not accepted him. And we see him in this moment, I believe, fully empowered to say, you don't have the same hooks in me. I, I don't need you to give me permission or to give me value any longer. I have that. That time has passed. I have not only upended luchador wrestling, but I have also found healing in this place in my own life. I think it's a beautiful way to consider what it looks like for us to dream in league with God.
Some questions that we're going to have during our Eucharist time is, in a crisis, where do you tend to look for safety, control, or influence? How might you seek a loyal companion to help facilitate an impasse in your own life? And is there a practice for right-sizedness you feel drawn to this week? Jonathan Merritt, who is a gay writer and former Christian pastor who's still very much rooted to his Christian faith, uh, recently posted about the spiritual practice of loving across difference. He talks about the need for us to, sure, have healthy boundaries and that not every relationship has to continue. Some do come to an end, but that at least with his father, who is an evangelical pastor who absolutely has the theological commitment to saying marriage and sexuality is between one man and one woman, that he doesn't want to yet give up on that relationship. He said some of what he's meant for both of them to love across difference is to understand that first and foremost, they're not, they can't have the need to change one another, which is painful. If you're a gay man wanting your father to fully embrace all of who you are and to know, but to keep this bridge open means I, I can't have the need to control you or to change you. And likewise, you can't, me either, you can't be sending me the video saying, hey, do you know about this person that claims they were once gay and now they're not? Uh, that instead it is truly this bridge of saying, you can be who you are and I can be who I am. And we can be in relationship of trying to understand and offer each other kindness and grace and mercy where possible. He talks about how messy that gets, but that he's committed, at least in that relationship, to not building barriers, but instead having bridges that they may still contend with each other in private, but that they're committed to contending for one another publicly, that they're giving more weight to the people who will be crying at their funerals than they are to the critics uh, that they hear in both of their communities that would say, no, 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 you, you shouldn't be in a relationship like this unless they fully are in alignment with where you are. And he wonders what it would look like for us if we all chose to love across difference, if we discern where are those relationships and those places where we might do it. How might our divided, deeply dug in world be filled with more gentleness, peace, joy, and thriving if we considered where we might practice this? Let's pray. Spirit of life. Grant us the discernment to distinguish between shallow positivity and the riches of joy that surround us. Joy that neither shies away from pain nor pacifies us with short-term distraction, but joy that gives us the courage to face the struggles of our shared lives with the sustenance we need. May laughter and pleasure, beauty, and the freedom you have given us be a source of strength, empathy, and creativity in all we do together. Holy One, we often feel like we have to choose between remaining attuned to the pain of the world around us and keeping our spirits afloat, between being serious about our convictions and accessing ease and delight. You, O oh God, promise us a more integrated way. Teach us how to protect the full breadth of our humanity and that of our neighbors, that the full spectrum of life may flourish. Amen.